if you would turn with me, we've been in Genesis, uh, just for a change of pace, we're going to go all the way to the other end of the Bible, and if you'll turn with me please to Revelations 3, I'll be reading verses 1 through 3. Oh, and by the way, while I have the opportunity, I may not get it again, um, this is not me. I did not sit for this, and it is not me. You've been fibbed too. <laughs> I'm not that handsome. <laughs> All right. We'll read through the entirety of the verses, and then uh, we'll work our way through them a piece at a time. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. I'm one of those people, much to my wife's chagrin and confusion, uh, who really enjoys those forensic television shows. Uh, the shows where homicide detectives and medical examiners uh, go out to a crime scene and investigate the, the crimes and the bodies of the victims. And they carefully analyze all of that with the cameras over their shoulder. And they determine from the clues they find, from the evidence they gather, by the end of the show, the cause of death and typically, not always, but usually, they can identify a, a, a killer suspect. But one thing those experts never do is examine the victim for signs of death. They examine them for the cause of death, sure, but never the condition. Although there are legal parameters by which we can define death, medically and scientifically, uh, those usually include uh, cessation of the heart, cessation of the lungs. They, there is no heartbeat and there is no breathing. And I believe in 1987 they added to it something which still uh, incurs moral and ethical debate, uh, the cessation of the brain function, brain dead. All of those are now considered parameters for legal death. But they're just that. They're more a legality than they are a necessity. Because if you, like I have, have ever had the experience of witnessing or seeing a dead body, you recognized it as a dead body. Death, at least physical death, is recognizable. Even at a funeral, you, you might hear people say as they, they walk past the casket, 
they look so peaceful. Or even they look so lifelike. But what would really cause a stir is if someone walked by the casket and said, they look alive. I know you don't want to say that around me in particular because I'm just looking for a reason to believe in the zombie apocalypse. The reality is, is a lifeless body looks lifeless. The same, however, may not be true of the spiritual man. And with that distinction, notice, this morning we'll be examining a spiritual corpse. Our victim, the church of Sardis. And we will attempt to determine from the biblical evidence a cause of death. But before we begin, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day, a day in which we are able to come together according to your grace, by your mercy, and in your love, to look to your word for your truth. Father, we thank you that we enjoy the privilege and the freedom to openly worship and to openly study and to openly name the name of Jesus. So, Father, now as we go to your word, as we examine it for the truth that you would offer us from it, Father, I pray that because we are a busy and distracted people, that we are a people that brings with us here today baggage and concerns and worries and fears, needs and, and an assortment and a variety of issues, Lord. I ask that you would still our hearts and bring peace to our minds. That, Lord, those things of the world would not hinder us from receiving well your word. Father, I pray as well that your Holy Spirit would take my meager, feeble words and would do a great work with them in the hearts of your children. Father, I pray that you would open our eyes and illuminate our hearts by the Spirit of Christ. But Father, that we would leave here today changed and better, more able and more ready to offer you our praise, our worship, and to serve you for your glory. We ask these things now, Lord, in the name of your precious, holy, and mighty Son, Jesus. Amen. Although the book of Revelation is in great part a prophetic book, nonetheless, the seven churches addressed in chapters 2 and 3 including the church of Sardis, were real churches. They were located in Asia Minor, uh, what we would consider now the region of Turkey. And these seven churches were in a near and circular proximity to each other. And all of these churches were active and functioning at the time that John was writing this letter. The city of Sardis was also once famed in itself 
as the wealthy and illustrious capital of the kingdom of Lydia. In addition, it was the terminus of the royal road, located in a gold-bearing area, and it was also a marketing center for the numerous surrounding shepherds who could come there and trade and barter and sell their woolen wares. So all in all, it was well positioned for commerce. And the city of Sardis enjoyed great economic success. In addition to its prosperity and its prominence, in its past, Sardis was also recognized as a fortress city due to it having what were considered impregnable cliffs and walls. It was thought to be impenetrable. Yet twice, in 547 and 546 B.C., and again in 214 B.C., the city was taken in a relatively short time, in a relatively easy manner. The first time by Cyrus II, the third, or the second time by Antichus III. Not because the walls had fallen down, not because the cliffs had shrunk, not because the great tower citadel that was overlooking the walls had fallen, but because on both occasions the city's watchmen had neglected their duty, become lax, and fallen asleep. The acclaim of Sardis as a great fortress now gave way to them becoming a byword and a cautionary tale of misguided complacency and a lack of vigilance. The church of Sardis, perhaps once a strong, Christ-honoring church, was now more than likely only outwardly impressive and that in the eyes of men. Like so many of our churches today, it may have been popular and well attended. It may have included numerous church functions, social outreach programs, and maybe even frequent youth group chariot washes to fund their mission trips. But ultimately, the church of Sardis appears to have befallen a similar fate as its namesake city, being captured and undone by its own complacency. Revelation 3.1 And to the angel of the church in Sardis write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive but you are dead. Since we began in the third chapter, I want to go back to Revelation 1, 1 through 2 and provide for you the answer whose words are these we just read. Revelation 1, 1 and 2 says, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants 
the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. So though authorship is rightly attributed to the hand and pen of the Apostle John, and though the revelations were delivered via angelic emissary, it's vital that we understand that every word here, every word just spoken, every word just heard, echoes the authoritative voice of the Trinity. These are the words of God. It's the revelation of Jesus, who, having the Holy Spirit, identified here as the seven spirits of God, as noted in Isaiah 11.2, which was given to him by God the Father. So what follows then? As we go forward, we need to understand clearly these are the verdicts of God. Verdicts perfect, righteous, and beyond debate. They disallow any protest, any question, or any reasoning of man. I know your works. How many of us today could stand before God and with calm demeanor and sure conscience hear those words spoken to us? I know your works. Those are frightening words. Those are powerful words. And with each of the four previous churches, having been commended by Christ for certain degrees at least of good works, Sardis has none sufficient to merit any commendation at all. Though its outward works might have been impressive in the eyes of men, they find no such favor from God because the motives were wrong even when the works were good. One of the divine attributes or attributes of God most commonly ascribed to Him alongside omnipotence or being all-powerful and omnipresence being everywhere is omniscience. And omniscience is that word we use to explain that God knows all things of all men at all times. Nonetheless, we have a tendency to think that when we sin in, in secret and that our sins are hidden from men, they're also hidden from God. Luke 8.17 dispels that belief for us. 
Nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to light. Hebrews 4.13 says the same. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. There's a story early in Genesis about a, a fellow that thought that he could hide his sin and nakedness and ashamedness from an all-seeing God. God came looking for him in the cool of the day and called out, Adam! Adam! Where are you, Adam? And Adam was hiding. Because he was naked and ashamed because of his sin. How ridiculous that we tried to hide from God. It was ridiculous for Adam and it's ridiculous for us. But God's question was rhetorical. For he had never lost sight of Adam. And he'd seen the sin. So too, we are unable to hide from God and unable to hide our sin. So thus now we hear God's truth. God's assessment of the church of Sardis expressed with these piercing words, I know. He goes on to say that this is what he knows. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. God doesn't pull punches. The condition diagnosed here is the condition, the spiritual condition of a church. These walls, this roof, this floor, this podium, and this pulpit, those aren't the church. The people sitting here today, those are the church. We are the church. And though God declares the spiritual condition of this church dead, it's a condition for which all are held responsible. Though active and busy, the church is depicted in a fashion reminiscent of Jesus' description of the scribes and Pharisees in Matthew 23. It's a harsh description. But for the church of Sardis, it's a fitting analogy and a fitting comparison. Hypocrites. For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead men's bones 
and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others. But within, you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Is that not true of many churches today? Is that not the state of many churches today? As they preach false gospels, as they worry more about the numbers of attendance than the hearts of their attendees, Now, while most members of the Sardis church were likely professing Christians, it's just as likely the same weren't truly regenerate, but merely going through religious motions. Although they still use the name of Christ, calling themselves Christian, and appeared to be a vibrant and active church of God, Spiritually, they were lifeless. They were dead. Bearing as a church the sure condition of those not born again. As Ephesians 2.1 declares, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. So unlike the other five churches called out by God for spiritual ills, the church of Sardis is the greater tragedy and is in the greater distress. It's not just weak. It's not just ill. It is, God declares, dead. So in speaking to this church declared dead, God says in verse 2, Wake up and strengthen what remains as and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Wait a minute. We got a problem. God just declared the church of Sardis dead. And yet here he says, Wake up. What's that about? And he says, To strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Here in the shadow of God's fatal decree on Sardis, and amidst the ruins of a decomposing church, He does what God has done on so many other occasions through Scripture. We find here that God has kept for Himself a living remnant of His chosen people. As we read through the Scriptures, we see numerous times that He's done this with the Israelites. We recall the story of the judgment flood 
for he reserved and preserved for himself Noah and his family. And we can recall as well the occasion of Elijah. When Ahab and Jezebel, after Elijah had put to death by the sword all of the prophets of Baal, issued what was tantamount to a contract on Elijah, sending him word that as he had done to the prophets of Baal, so would be his fate within a day. And Elijah, being a man of God, ran away and hid. That seems to be a, a real popular tactic sometimes in the Bible for the heroes of the Bible. I'm no hero of the Bible, but I thought about it a little myself this morning. So God has kept for himself a living remnant. Now understand, the remnant he's kept, they're not healthy. They're not well. But they have a pulse. And so what does God say to this remnant? Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. This isn't a mother's gentle nudge to urge her children out of bed and off to school. This alludes again back to the wartime seizures of Sardis, which probably occurred at nighttime. And in the context of Revelation, this is an alarm. Wake up! Danger is at the door. Beware! Your life is on the line. This is a trumpet blast calling comatose men to awaken and to set about strengthening God's church. Because left unattended, it will continue to atrophy and be wholly unprepared for the return of its groom. This warning to awaken and be prepared is reflected again in another parable, that of the ten virgins in Matthew 25, where the virgins have gone out and fallen asleep, and only half of them had oil for their lamps. And the others, upon the groom's coming, awakened, and unable to borrow oil for their lamps, or kept out of the bridal groom. Paul, too, offers a similar warning in Romans 13.11, where he says, You know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. Let's face it, such a calling may seem 
impossible. To live with steadfast diligence, striving after holiness, when all around us universal deadness and decline prevails. As we look out upon a world around us that persecutes the Christian, though lightly here, it grows. As we look out upon the world around us to churches who proclaim a wealth and health gospel of false teachings, as we see everyone on Facebook praying for you, brother, and knowing many don't know Christ, but are satisfied in believing they do, as we see those we know and love sometimes falling away in the faith, it can be pretty disheartening, pretty discouraging, and come close to being defeating. And the truth is that if we, in our own power, try to meet this call, it is impossible. Which is why we hitch our wagon to the completed work of Christ. The sure promise of His unfailing Word. Certain that, as Philippians 1.6 tells us, that He who began a good work in us will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. The scriptures tell us that in the last days, 1 Timothy 4.1 and Matthew 24.10, that the faithful even will fall away. That doesn't demand that we fall away. And what is that that they're to waken up to? Verse 2 concludes with, For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. The indictment here is that something is lacking in their works. They have the shell, but not the kernel. They're hollow and empty, the inward part missing. And here's the truth. Any works performed other than in response to God's grace and done for any reason other than God's glory, with our believing that we can manifest in our works sufficient outward effort to satisfy our debt against God, keeps sin upon sin. All outward forms or legal efforts, apart from faith, are but dead works. It's to these which the prophets have constantly called men to repent of.
Revelation 3, 3 reads, Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. And you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. 1 Corinthians 15, 1-11 tells us what it is that we have received and heard and are to keep. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Here Paul reminds them and us of what Christ has done. The grace given, the mercy shown, the redemption purchased with His shed blood. They and we are to remember and hold fast to this, His gift of salvation repenting of them and trusting in no other thing apart from Christ and His Word. But, if you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. And you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Hear that. If you will not wake up, I will come. And I will come against you. For those responding well to God's wake-up call, to those who turn in repentance back to Christ, to those who hold fast again to the Word preached to them in the beginning, to those who trust not in themselves, but in the substitutionary life and death of Christ 
and the grace afforded them through His ransom and resurrection. There is no fear of the coming day of the Lord. We rejoice in that day. We cry out in our prayers, Lord, come soon. We see around us the destruction, the devastation, and the death wrought by sin. We know the tears and the suffering. We know the pain and the hurt. And we look forward to that glorious day where we're in the presence eternally of our great King. Where every tear will be wiped away. No more sorrow. No more sin. And we have no fear of His coming. First Thessalonians 5.11 says it well. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them, as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness. Brothers, will that day to surprise you like a thief? For you are all children of light, children of the day. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with Him. What a wonderful promise. What an encouraging word. Yet, to any who turn away from God's counsel and reject the inseparable gift and giver, the day of the Lord is no less assured. But for them, that day is terror and wrath. Matthew 24, 42-43 Stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Second Peter 3. 2 through 10. You should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, 
following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact. That the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the Word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. In closing... I have two points of application. The first is for the believer. As Second Peter 1.10 calls us to do, make our calling and election sure. Be vigilant in ensuring before God that we aren't bearing only an outward reputation of being alive, but that our every faith, hope, and dependence rests firmly in the completed work of our risen Lord, who by His death on Calvary's cross purchased us from the bondage of sin, paying in full in His flesh the wages of our sin, and in justifying us and clothing us with His own righteousness, established our eternal reconciliation with the Father, who has, through Christ, adopted us as beloved sons and daughters. For the believer, then, the sign of irrevocable life in Christ is that He abides in us and we abide in Him, says John 15, to the glory of our holy God. For the non-believer, 
I'm sorry. But I'm not able to offer you any sign of life. The Word of God forbids me to deceive you. I can only tell you that apart from Christ, you remain dead in your sin. But so too, according to the grace and mercy shown me, a fellow sinner, I'm also compelled by the love of Christ to remind you of words you heard earlier this hour. Wake up. And as the Spirit of God directs you in faith, believe with your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. Acknowledge before Him the sins you know and ask Him to reveal to you the sins you don't. knowing that He promises, as written in 1 John 1.9, that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It may be that you're here today for just such an hour as this, And just as no man knows the day that the Lord will come, so too no one here knows the day that they will pass. But regarding His sure judgment against sin, let me repeat these words. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. In turning to Christ, you'll discover not just signs of life, but eternal life in Christ. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Heavenly Father, Lord, my words today are but my words, lest they be empowered by your Holy Spirit. Lord, empower the word spoken today. For the believer, Lord, wake us from any slumber we may be enduring. Open our eyes to the needs around us in the church, amongst the church, and outside the doors of the church. Lord God, fill us with fresh fire, new love, new urgency to live for Your glory. Give us a new hunger, Lord God, for Your Word. For in it are the words of life. 
Help us, Lord God, to not be satisfied and complacent. Help us not to say peace when there is no peace. Help us, Lord God, to be vigilant and diligent in our battles against sin. Give us the courage, Lord God, to wage mortifying death war against those temptations and sins which would draw us away from You. Heavenly Father, we so desperately need Your Spirit. We live in a climate today, Lord God, where spirituality runs from everything from trees to to exercise, Lord. Lord God, may we have the courage to speak the truth of the Gospel. May we stand up and stand out for Christ. May we speak up and speak out in truth. And may we live out our salvation for Your glory. Father, for those here today who do not know Jesus, for those here today who have an outward appearance of righteousness, but are inwardly dead, playing Christian as they run toward the cliff of hell. Lord God, speak to their hearts. May the pride holding them from repentance perish. May the heart trusting in themselves break. May their confidence in their works shatter. And may they be made desperate in their need for Jesus. For those, Lord, who have never known You and claim not to know You, Lord, pierce their hearts. Do a mighty upending work in their lives. Rescue them, Lord God, from the wages of sin and the eternity of hell and open their eyes to Jesus. In the name of Jesus, we pray these things. Amen. Thank you for listening to this free audio podcast by Veritas Church. For more audio and video, please visit veritas-truth.com.